0: I'm speaking this morning about faith, but I will let you know from the very beginning that uh, based on my experiences in Bible class and other things, I don't have faith that our sound system is not going to cut some things out here, so I've got a backup. Either what is happening is we are all of a sudden experiencing issues with our sound system or God is seeking to edit some of the things that people are saying. (laughs) Next week, we will actually be talking about spiritual warfare, so you can learn a little bit more about that uh, next week as we look at faith. Um, Several years ago, I I found myself in a precarious situation that I did not want to be in. I am definitely afraid of heights, but there I was with my hand on the railing, my torso strapped to this thin wire, and my eyes gazing 2,000... Feet below me, wondering what would happen if I splatted on that ground below. See, I wonder whether as I was getting ready to do that, whether I had faith. I mean, you could look at me and it would be clear that my heart was racing. I was perspiring and I kept saying to myself, I know better than this. And yet there I was. See, I think we've come to understand faith as something that has a certain bravado to it. A certain swagger that we associate with faith. To to have faith means that we step into situations with stone-cold emotion. We don't see or we don't experience a thing. Sometimes we might think faith looks more like this. Or perhaps faith looks like this. Confident and bold. So the question is, as I got ready to go across this zip line, did I have faith? Is faith a form of denial? We deny our emotions. We deny our questions. We deny our humanity, and we just go about doing things apart from all of those things. A second grade student made his habit in Bible class asking the teacher, Why? How do you know? Why? How do you know? Why? How do you know? And any of you who have taught Bible class know how fun and exhilarating and exciting that is to have a student just like that. And so this, the teacher said not to ask questions, but to have faith. And that young boy said that he began to learn in the second grade that faith means not asking questions, faith means not studying, faith means not thinking, faith means just doing whatever God said. And as he grew, he said, well, that's not faith, is it? Frederick Buchner once wrote, or Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake. And moving. Questions and doubt can be seen as a catalyst, something that will drive us closer to Jesus if we choose to wrestle in an honest way. And so, going back to the zip line, we ask Did I have enough faith? Nicholas Westerhoff says, Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you over the chasm until you're forced to walk out on it. See, even though I scream the whole way across, I let go. And it might not have been the prettiest thing that you ever saw. And you might have wondered if I would survive it because of all the anxiety. But I did have enough faith to let go that day. And I think what we'll find in our story this morning is sometimes faith doesn't always look pretty. But sometimes with Jesus, even just a little bit of faith is enough to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in us. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29. It's a story where there is no exemplary faith. We seem to have to search high and low to find any little bits of faith, but something amazing happens when you stag when you put together that staggering faith. We find Jesus coming down the hill with Peter and James and John. And they find this chaotic situation. There are the crowds and the disciples and the scribes. And then there is this father with his son. And if you do Bible study and you look at this enough, there's going to be several times along the way where you'll say, I don't know who's talking to who here. This is not a direct one-way conversation, but all four of these people are tangled up in conversations. And it is Jesus trying to figure out what's going on and he's asking about what are you arguing about and it is the father who interjects in the 17th verse and he says, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit who makes him unable to speak and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and it becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out but they could not do so. Literally what the man is saying is that they lacked the strength necessary to do what I had asked them. And then Jesus, I assume in some sense of exasperation or frustration, says, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Which begs the question, to whom is Jesus addressing in that statement? Again, if you've tracked the conversation so far, you've realized it's not always direct conversations that are happening here. Some will say, if you look at the syntax, the structure, well, clearly, Jesus is in a conversation with the Father regarding the Son, so that's who the conversation is with. That's who Jesus is addressing when he speaks of a lack of faith. But this is the man who carried, literally is what it's saying, he brought his son by carrying him to Jesus. He finds that Jesus isn't there and he says, look, I believe enough in Jesus to believe even his disciples could do this. And then when Jesus says, bring the man to him, we wonder as he's talking still to the Father and to the Son. Others will say, no, it's the disciples clearly who Jesus is frustrated with who is saying that they are the ones who lack faith here. In fact, Matthew in Matthew 17, 20 displays this as a lack of faith, as Matthew points to this. And yet, in Mark's gospel, this word uh, of generation, Jesus is speaking to the generations, It's always clearly a group larger than the disciples and all the rest of Mark. If that's who Jesus is addressing here, it's the first time. And doesn't the fact that they tried to cast out the evil spirit indicate that they did have, in fact, some faith? I mean, if I don't have faith, I won't do something, I won't work at something, I won't won't attempt it at all, and yet they did. So are they the faithless generation? And some will just look at the faithfulness that seems to be all around, that there is a faith deficiency that is impacting and affecting this situation here. Which then begs the question, in a miracle, who is it that needs to have faith? On some occasions in Mark's gospel as the person who is receiving the miracle that must have all of the faith. We remember Mark chapter 5 verse 34. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. In that case, it's again, it's a story of what I call a stolen miracle there. Faith of a woman there. Now we find sometimes, and this may give you the heebie-jeebies, but I'm just preaching the text here. Sometimes the faith of another can be sufficient for someone else in Mark's gospel. You see that very clearly in Mark 2, 5. When the four friends lowered the paralyzed man down, the text says, When Jesus saw their faith. If he was talking specifically about the paralyzed man, he would have said what? When Jesus saw his faith. But Jesus recognizes their faith, and because of their faith, Jesus will do something in the midst of that paralyzed man's life. Sometimes there seems to be this sense where there there needs to be like a a faith score or a faith quota over 25% or over 30%, and if it falls below that quota, we're not going to see a miracle. Mark 6, verses 5 through 6, And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. And then there are times that the one who is doing the miracle must himself or herself have faith. Mark 11:22 Jesus answered, "Have faith in God, truly I tell you,